What is significant about the suspicious death of a high-profile judge in India in the late fall of 2014? Why would news media in a democracy back away from stories implicating the powerful? Who is the BJP and what are the real factors that might be driving it to suppress the freedoms and civil liberties of the working class? How is the Indian government's approach to domestic issues influencing its relations with neighboring countries and with major foreign powers like the US and Russia? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we turn our attention to developments in one of the world's largest economies and indications that democratic freedoms and mechanisms there are imperiled under the current right-wing BJP government. Our guests for the hour are Niranjan Takle, the journalist who broke a major story about the death of Judge Brijgopal Loya, and University of Manitoba academic and author Radhika Desai. On this week's program, the suspicious death of Judge Loya, the BJP, and the rise of fascism in India. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 21st, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabeg Akin, the homeland of the Métis, and the traditional territory of the Nihiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. They, the tariffs, have everything to do with pulling down, weakening the yuan, the very strong Chinese yuan, and by doing so, the Chinese economy. The yuan is an officially declared reserve currency recognized by the IMF and is fast replacing the dollar as the key reserve currency in the world. That is what Washington is afraid of, and rightly so. Once the dollar ceases being the main reserve currency, the demand for the dollar will decline, and the hegemonic role for the dollar is gone, which may mean the collapse of the dollar empire, and in the end, the end of the empire altogether. Already, the biggest hydrocarbon producers and consumers in the world, China, Russia, Venezuela, and Iran, are no longer using the dollar for their trade deals, but local currencies, or the gold-convertible Chinese won. That comes from a transcript of a press TV interview with Peter Koenig under the headline, New U.S. Trade Sanctions Against China, posted September 20th. The attempt to indict and prosecute al-Assad and other Syrian officials for war crimes is undoubtedly a directive handed down by the United States and its bulldog ambassador, Nikki Haley. This politically motivated investigation, quote-unquote, by the Geneva-based UN Human Rights Council, which incidentally the U.S. removed itself from, will base its prearranged conclusion on a fairy tale, the unproven and white-helmet staged fake chemical attacks in Syria. Because al-Assad will not leave office willingly, having been elected by the Syrian people, the only option appears to be the Slobodan Milosevic treatment. This Serbian, the former president of the late Yugoslavia, which was chopped into bantustans by NATO and the United States following a sustained bombing campaign by Bill Clinton, was arrested and sent to The Hague to face prosecution for war crimes. He subsequently died while in confinement. 
That comes from the article, Syria, the United Nations, and the Slobodan Milosevic Treatment by Kurt Nimmo. Posted September 20th, originally appearing on the author's blog site, Another Day in the Empire. According to Marceline Nduwamungu, a founding member of Réseau International des Femmes pour la Démocratie et la Paix, or Women's International Network for Democracy and Peace, Victoire has returned to a house in Kigali that a group of her supporters lived in to advocate for her and prepare food to take her to her in prison. They're all in prison now, so she returned to an empty house. Phone and internet connections are still being arranged, but Deutsche Welle succeeded in arranging an interview in which she said that she would continue trying to open political space and free all political prisoners, and that she did not fear returning to prison herself. She also said, quote, I never, 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 never confessed that I committed any crime in Rwanda. I did not do it, and I did not ask for forgiveness for a crime I did not commit, unquote. That comes from the article. Two African Heroes Leave Prison in Rwanda by Anne Garrison, posted September 20th. Driven from the quote-unquote mainstream, Hirsch must publish his work outside the United States. Perry set up his own independent news website, Consortium News, where in a final piece following a stroke, he referred to journalism's veneration of quote, approved opinions, unquote, while quote, unapproved evidence is brushed aside or disparaged regardless of its quality, unquote. Although journalism was always a loose extension of establishment power, something has changed in recent years. Dissent, tolerated when I joined a national newspaper in Britain in the 1960s, has regressed to a metaphoric underground as liberal capitalism moves towards a form of corporate dictatorship. This is a seismic shift, with journalists policing the new groupthink, as Perry called it, dispensing its myths and distractions, pursuing its enemies. That comes from the article, Hold the Front Page, The Reporters Are Missing, by John Pilger, posted September 20th. The Spider's Web, Britain's Second Empire, is a documentary film that shows how Britain transformed from a colonial power into a global financial power. At the demise of empire, City of London financial interests created a web of offshore secrecy jurisdictions that captured wealth from across the globe and hid it in a web of offshore islands. Today, up to half of global offshore wealth is hidden in British offshore jurisdictions, and Britain and its offshore jurisdictions are the largest global players in the world of international finance. How did this come about, and what impact does it have on the world today? This is what the spider's web sets out to investigate. That was from an introduction under the headline, Video, the spider's web, Britain's second empire from independent POV, posted September 20th. Hitherto, the EU had no compelling reasons to strain its relations with the USA because US sanctions do not affect them. But now, secondary sanctions regarding Iran also hit hard at strategic EU companies and financial institutions and negatively affect EU global strategic interests in energy from the Persian Gulf. U.S. sanctions, in effect, attack the liberty, security, and sovereignty of its biggest group of friends, the EU. Thus, we have now come to a defining moment for the global sanctions regime run by the USA. The U.S. economy is already less than a quarter of the world's GDP in USD dollars, and in 2023, it will fall to only just about one-fifth of the world, source IMF. 
The non-U.S. part, the four-fifths of the world economy, now including the EU and China, constitute an increasingly advanced group, and they are about to collude against the U.S. sanctions regime. That comes from the article, U.S. sanctions reach a turning point, de-dollarization and collusion against the U.S., by Karsten Rees, posted September 20th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. India, with a population of over 1.2 billion people, is considered the most populous democracy in the world. The Indian economy is the world's sixth largest by nominal GDP and third largest by purchasing power parity. The South Asian nation has critical strategic significance, bordering both China to the north and Pakistan to the west. It is a nuclear power with strategic ties to both the U.S. and Russia. Nevertheless, alarming developments in recent years paint a picture of democratic principles under assault, in particular in the realm of the judiciary. Over the course of the next hour, we'll be hearing about these developments and the failure of accountability mechanisms, including the media, to confront them. Joining me in the CKUW studios for a live-to-air discussion is an Indian journalist whose expose in November of 2017 for Caravan magazine has detailed a milestone in the collapse of democracy and the rise of fascism in India. His name is Niranjan Takle. He is in town to share his story and its significance to a local audience tomorrow, Saturday, the 22nd of September. Also joining us in the studio is an associate and a past guest, Radhika Desai. She's professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba, as well as that institution's director or a director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. She's written numerous articles and several books, uh, including an authoritative volume on Indian politics from 2004, entitled, and forgive me if uh, they get the pronunciation wrong, Slouching Toward Ayodhya, From Congress to Hindutva in Indian Politics, published, uh, second edition, published 2004. Radhika is also involved with a group presenting Niranjan tomorrow. Welcome to you both. Uh, you are something, uh, Radhika, you are something of an authority on Indian politics uh, in your own right. And uh, I'd appreciate it if you could uh, share with our listeners a little bit more about uh, Niranjan's background and, uh, you'll, and about your group and, and what uh, drove you to uh, bring him here to Winnipeg. Oh, sure, Michael. Uh, f- uh, I think that we are very lucky to have Niranjan here and the whole, his, uh, he's ma- doing an extensive tour of both the United States and Canada. And uh, things began, were kicked off by a, um, a, 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 a kind of tech engineer uh, uh, of um, Indian origin called Manoj Shinde, who lives in Boston and runs a company there. But he also does uh, a lot of other work uh, 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 promoting the idea of a pluralist and secularist 
India. Uh, and he's actually, I believe, involved with a US-based group, which uh, we are very lucky to have, called uh, Overseas Indians for a Pluralist India. So um, this organization, and I think it's important that these organizations exist because a lot of overseas Indians tend to be organized by Hindu nationalism. So these uh, organizations are very important counterpoint to them. We also have a similar organization in Vancouver called Sansad or South Asians um, uh, for Secularism and Democracy. So, And Sansad also means parliament in Hindi, which is a nice kind of a, a word to have. And in uh, Winnipeg, a few years ago, we created an organization called DETESA, uh, which is short for Democracy, Equality and Secularism in South Asia. So these through these organizations and others in other cities, Niranjan is doing an extensive tour lasting many weeks of the United States and Canada. Uh, and what he's doing is he's bringing to light a series of, or, or let, let me rephrase that, what he's doing is from the beginning of the present government, which is the Modi government, there has been, uh, within months of the Modi government taking power, the assault on intellectuals, journalists and activists began. In And this assault has not just included things like harassment, intimidation, etc., but it has included daylight, broad daylight murders um, of, of such people. And so Niranjan's work, which I'll, uh, I'll let him talk about, but Niranjan's work has been in the forefront of exposing Exposing um, uh, these problems, uh, and I think it, the final thing I should say is that Niranjan's work is also very important because the mainstream media seems to be involved in a certain type of conspiracy of silence. And indeed, he lost his job in um, as a, a, a veteran journalist. He lost his job uh, because of his exposés. So I think that uh, this tour is very significant. I hope many people will come out. I think it's at the William Stevens Library on Kiveton Street, and it's at one thirty tomorrow. Okay. And we'll, of course, repeat that information uh, later in the program. Uh, Niranjan, a pleasure to have you on, an honor. Thank you. Um, I, I, I know that uh, you've written, as I mentioned, you wrote in particular two key articles last year uh, related to the death of uh, um, Judge Loya. And uh, you were approached by the family uh, about in 2016. And uh, over the course of those conversations, you pretty much developed a strong case that the official story of the death of that judge was uh, is is an error and sure. flawed. So I, maybe I'll give I'll, I'll hand it over to you if if I could because I, I think it's very important, especially at a time when there's a lot of hysteria over the the Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court in the United States. I mean this what you, what's happening in India just goes way beyond that in terms of uh, its significance. So uh, you tell us may, maybe just relay to us uh, the, the you know what through your uh, discussions with the, the, the Loya family well, what are the significant omissions, distortions and uh, uh, irregularities in that the account of, of what has been portrayed as a, a natural death due to natural causes. See basically Bob, I I stumbled upon the story. I, I was staying in Pune and uh, uh, Judge Noya's niece, Nupur Biyani, she uh, came over to the same hotel because she has she had overheard uh, my conversation with somebody about a very controversial issue. And uh, she came over uh, to the place the next day and she asked for a journalist uh, who was staying with, with the same hotel. So they called me downstairs and uh, that's how I uh, came across uh, Nupur. And she narrated to me the entire incidents that had happened about 
how judge lawyer died and what had happened in uh, previously before his death and what happened after his death so uh, the thing was that the family didn't have any uh, documentary uh, records of sorts and uh, it most of her account was a hearsay account that she had heard from her aunt or mother or grandfather uh so it it really needed a lot of investigation because uh, the evidence was required to substantiate uh, the doubts and the questions that the family had in their minds so uh, i started the investigation and uh, after almost um, two months i i got access to the postmortem report the first medical uh, record and the postmortem report itself had many discrepancies for example uh the family was uh, in fact on the 1st of december the family was called at 5 o'clock in the morning and uh, family was informed that judge loya has died in the night and his postmortem is over and the body has been sent to his birthplace gatigao uh, whereas the postmortem report recorded that the timing of the death is 6:15 in the morning so uh, uh, how how come the family received calls almost an hour and a half before uh the death had happened uh that was the first thing second uh, is that the postmortem report recorded that the cause of death is coronary artery insufficiency which is essentially a cardiac arrest uh but at the same time the same postmortem report recorded that uh, his other organs like kidney lungs uh, liver and even dura uh, have got congested now dura is a layer on the brain so uh, there is no reason for other organs to uh, get congested uh, in case of cardiac arrest uh, because it is a sudden uh, failure of the heart and uh, when i spoke to a few medical experts they also uh, said uh, in confirmed that uh, it is only in case of poisoning that the other organs get uh, congested and in case of an assault on head uh the dura can get congested so that uh, actually uh, became the first point of kind of uh, corroboration of the doubts that the family had because the family had mentioned uh, this fact that there was an injury on the back of his head and his shirt was soaked in blood when they saw the the body yeah when they saw the body mm-hmm. so uh, so these were the things that corroborated what the family had said then uh, i mean subsequently i got my access got i got access to the other medical reports such as uh, forensic recommendation report forensic report uh, histopathology report and the visera report uh, which also uh, kind of confirmed uh, what the family was saying there were another obvious things like uh, he was uh, taken to uh, nagpur uh, by two of his uh, judge colleagues and uh, these two judge colleagues took him to the hospital when he uh, suffered uh, uh, chest pain uh, moreover the one of the two judges had served in nagpur so he was very well aware of the uh, i mean important places hospitals and other things in nagpur now this judge loya was complaining of ch- chest pain pain and he was taken to an orthopedic hospital now that was surprising sorry what hospital orthopedic hospital orthopedic. that is dande dande hospital Uh, from orthopedic hospital he was taken to a cardiac hospital where the records of that particular hospital mediterranean hospital it shows that uh, a neurosurgery was conducted on judge loya so it was all i mean puzzling and everything was raising further questions and for which there was no answer um, for example the two judges who had accompanied him had told the family that they will be they, they had gone to nagpur by train 
but now that the entire train records on on the 29th of november sh- uh, do not show the names of those three judges moda kulkarni and uh, uh, loya so how did they actually went to nagpur is, is a question uh, moreover uh, according to them they they took him by auto rickshaw so how did they get an auto rickshaw at 12:30 in the night in such a vvip guest house so there are many questions for which there is no answer and uh, in fact uh, that's the reason the investigation will continue i think it's important to point out to uh, the our listeners uh, the the significance of this lawyer of of judge lawyer because he was overseeing or he had been appointed to oversee a very high profile case involving the murder uh, a murder in 2014 in which implicated a um, well the, the present president of the party not of the country of the party the bjp yeah. party <clears throat> and uh there there were some irregularities in in the lead up to his i mean the the president was not showing up to uh to trial and then and, and when yes. the and, and then the previous uh judge had been uh removed yeah. and uh that's Loya when lawyer became yeah. inserted so yeah, yeah. that that's important background and it, and it it seems to link to the yes. uh, the party and and high power yeah moreover i mean uh, judge lawyer died on the 1st of december and uh, a new judge was appointed on the 10th of december uh, he uh, agreed to hear the discharge petition that amit shah the national president of bjp had filed uh, and uh, he heard the defense lawyer that is the lawyer of amit shah uh, for 3 days that is 15 16 17 december Uh, the prosecuting agency central bureau of investigation that is cbi it argued for 10 minutes and the complainant's lawyer was not allowed to argue so uh, the the reserved uh, the order was reserved on the 17th december and uh, amit shah was discharged of all the charges on the 30th of december and i mean i, I must uh, uh, tell you uh, uh, at this point that the charge sheet was 22000 page long apart from the statements of the witnesses and the evidence and, and other things so it is physically impossible i mean it is just unimaginable that the judge Uh, who had agreed to uh, hear the discharge petition could have verified a 22000 page long charge sheet and the witness statements and the evidence and the material and circumstantial circumstantial evidence in a span of 13 days that is impossible to imagine but that that's what happened and uh, he was discharged of all the charges on 30th of december that fa- that's fast hmm Now that death coming just before I mean I imagine I mean people are who they are and and there will be all sorts of murmurs I mean maybe I'm asking you to speculate a bit but is there any doubt in in your mind that the the subsequent judge that the death of Loya sent a message to the entire community that uh, you know we want you to uh, uh to rule in a certain way Of course I mean it did send a message across to the uh, in the judiciary uh i mean not only to the judges but also to the uh i mean the the lawyers who who try and defend the most underprivileged uh, sections of the society in such cases uh and specifically i mean when when the story broke out uh, it was essentially the problem uh, of the judicial fraternity uh because the very judicial independence was at stake 
in in uh, in such case and uh, i uh, genuinely had a lot of expectations from the judicial fraternity to take cognizance of this particular incidents but uh, unfortunately there was only one uh, uh, i mean protest that was held in delhi for 6 or 7 hours uh, but the the most significant incidents happened is that the four senior most serving judges of the supreme court uh the, the four members of the collegium they came out openly on the 12th of january 19 2018 and addressed a press conference and they made it a point to say that it was judge loya's matter that triggered them uh, to come out openly and and speak up uh, about the problems and the in- bureaucratic interference that the judiciary is facing in india hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about what the family told you about the kind of pressure that was on Judge Loya, some of the, uh, the, 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 the carrots and sticks that were being aimed at him in the lead up to his death? Yeah, uh, like uh, Judge Loya's sister, uh, Dr. Anuratha Biyani, uh, she told me uh, in, in the video recorded interview that uh, uh, Judge Loya was offered a bribe of 100 crore rupees by and the offer was made by the former chief justice of bombay high court himself and uh, he he used to uh, often call judge loya to his house in the night late in the night um, uh, specifically asking him asking him not to bring his security or anybody along and uh, uh, he used to constantly i mean keep pressure uh, on judge loya uh, for a favorable order uh he was also judge loya was in, fi- in fact also told that he doesn't have to bother about the media and the media coverage uh because uh, they said that uh, the media will be managed and there will mm-hmm. there would be another big news to occupy the screens and the discharge of amitsha will remain in the scroll or the ticker on the screen so uh, he was assured of all the media uh, protection media coverage uh, uh and uh, and money at the same time uh, he used to receive uh, threatening letters as you said the carrot and the stick both so uh, and judge loya himself uh, used to confide in his niece uh, anuradha uh, rather nupur biyani uh, about how he was constantly kept under pressure and uh, how the case is so very important but he also mentioned a fact to his niece that this is an a, a extremely sensitive case and uh, this is about the fairness about uh, of the judiciary and he would give a very fair decision he won't get pressurized by uh, by the tactics that that have been used against him hmm. i was wondering if you could just maybe uh, briefly mention your own interactions with jo- judge lawyer's son because it, it it seems to be quite telling about uh, you know the the level of faith that uh, that he at least has in the uh, in the uh, the system yeah, yeah in fact that meeting with uh, anuj loya judge loya's son became a, a triggering point for me also to uh, investigate and probe deeper uh, into the entire case uh, it so happened that i had gone to meet anuj and i wanted to talk to him uh, because uh, i had got a, a letter that was written by anuj loya, anuj uh, loya and uh, it talked about uh, the fear that mm, he was um, i mean going through <clears throat> so i went to his house and he was sitting with his grandfather on his right side and uh, with his head down 
and i to start a conversation i asked him that uh, what do you do and uh, he 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 didn't look up he he looked at his grandfather and grandfather said that he is uh, doing he is studying then i asked him what are you studying then uh, again grandfather replied that uh, he is doing law uh, again i asked him that uh, in which college uh, to uh, this again the grandfather replied that uh, some college in pune and uh, so i asked his grandfather that why anuj is not speaking i am trying to talk to him uh, and grandfather said that anuj uh, doesn't have i mean anuj doesn't trust any single individual in the world now and he doesn't have faith in any system be it political system judicial or or even uh, journalism uh, and and it was a shock for me i mean i i just couldn't digest the fact that a 18 year old boy has lost faith and trust in his life and uh, while getting down i called my uh, from their house i called my daughter and i actually asked her that uh, i met a guy who is one year younger to and to you and he says that he he has lost faith and trust in his life and how is he going to live without the the two most essential ingredients uh, to which uh, actually she she said to me that uh, you cannot create trust about judiciary or political system in uh, in anuj's mind uh, at the most what you can do is you can work and create trust about journalism Uh, in his mind that is your profession so uh, actually it made me introspect i mean i i thought a lot over it and i genuinely felt that yes i mean uh, my daughter should essentially trust in the in her father's profession because that is from where i feed her that is from where i educate her and uh, if my daughter herself uh, i mean uh, would lose her faith in her father's profession uh i mean how how do i uh, even try to convince anuj to speak up because he has already gone under so much of pain and sorrow and loss a personal loss so uh, i thought that day that no matter what happens i will uh, investigate this okay. story and will bring it out in case you've just joined us listeners you're tuned to the global research news hour on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and broadcast on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States our guest here in the studio at CKUW are Niranjan Takle a investigative journalist from India who's uh, uh, was about the man behind the major expose of um, judicial uh, irregularities irregularities in the indian judicial system and uh, also an associate radhika desai professor of the political side political studies at the university of manitoba now um you're a journalist uh, niranjan and i want to know uh before we expand the conversation i just want to know what the trajectory of your involvement with your your former employer the week you know from the time you came to them with this story and uh, to the point of your departure you know what what was that journey were, were there was there any support for you at any point no but, but actually i mean uh, after 
listening to whatever nupur had said i had i mean according to the procedures that we had uh, to follow in the week magazine i had uh, written a brief uh, a story brief to my editors and had discussed it with them and uh, in fact after a long discussion over 2 hours uh, they somehow agreed uh, and allowed me to investigate it and uh, i mean as i said during investigation of course uh, there was lot of resistance from all the uh, institutions and the people that were involved be it uh, the vvip guest house of the uh, in nagpur or the government medical college where the post mortem had happened or the burde and uh, dande and uh, uh, meditrina hospitals where he was taken to before uh, his death uh, so uh, every single Uh, institution or the police officers i mean they didn't they were completely non cooperative uh, they had not even recorded the inquest panchanama which is most important i mean without which the post mortem cannot even happen but they had not recorded it and uh, so there was lot of resistance from all these people apart from that uh, yes of course i mean uh, my phone was tapped all i mean uh, i was con- constantly tracked and that's that's true that's a uh, matter of fact uh later when i submitted the story to uh, my uh, former employers uh, they sat on it for almost 8 months i submitted it on the 27th february while uh, they conveyed to me in in the early uh, month of november 3rd of november that they won't be able to carry the story so uh, uh i mean that's how it uh, it went after that in fact i i went to many other publications uh for ca- publishing this story because i was as i said i was personally committed to it and uh, so i took it to many publications but they all refused to publish it and and you had all the supporting documentation yeah everything i mean everything mm. all the b- b- medical reports which clearly substantiate what Uh, how how he died uh, <clears throat> but nobody was ready to carry it moreover i had the video recorded interviews i mean it was not a hearsay conversation or it was not uh, an audio ca- conversation i had video recorded interviews which are, which is an admissible evidence in the court mm. okay so despite that Yeah, I'm going to Radhika, would you like to uh, yeah. comment? Actually no, I had a supplementary question for Niranjan because I think that uh, the audience might be interested in hearing Niranjan. What's what would you hear from your editors of the week or the other publications to which you submitted it? What did they give as a reason for not publishing it? I think it would be interesting for people to know. No, I mean uh, I was told by the editors of the week magazine that uh, I mean, this is too controversial. I mean, many powerful people are involved in this, and we just cannot uh, carry this. We, they said that we have already had enough uh, problem because of your earlier story, which I had done on, on Savarkar. And uh, uh, in fact, during uh, after submission of this uh, Loya story, I had done another uh, undercover uh, investigation story, which also didn't get carried. Uh, it was about the cow protection uh, the false cow protection or the business that is run under the pretext of cow protection but it also didn't get carried uh, there were publications like uh, the wire uh, which, who told me that they are already facing a trial of 100 crore rupees uh, 
so they just don't want to take any more risk uh, uh-huh. uh, unless and until they get i mean they get free uh, from the case they won't be touching another controversial story so that was their uh, compulsion yeah. sort of well you were men- mentioning earlier about the, yeah. the me- managing the media um yeah. there was a, at least one publication i think it was indian express that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, basically uh, corrected quote unquote your uh, your observations uh, you know, would uh, essentially uh, uh, attacking your credibility yeah so Indian Express yes i know i mean uh, in fact 3 uh, days after my story uh, broke we came to know that uh, four reporters have been deployed to discredit the story and uh, in fact uh, it so happened that indian express carried the story now i i as a journalist uh, know it for a fact that your nobody's story can start with a quote i mean essentially a story uh begins with uh, some uh, something and it logically leads to a quote and then gets out of a quote so here the story began with a quote uh, in which uh, judge bhushan uh, gavai uh, said that uh, it was he who took judge loya in his car from uh, ravi bhavan to dande hospital uh, now the st- this, this uh, story by indian express appeared 8 days after my story uh, had appeared so i i i mean anybody would uh, find it very i mean suspicious that uh, why it took 8 days for judge uh, gavai to say that he took judge loya uh, in his car from dande to ravi bhavan uh, in fact when it went to the the pil went to the supreme court i i i mean we kept asking uh, to produce the cctv footage of the ravi bhavan and we kept asking Uh, to have these statements of the judges uh, on affidavit but uh, neither the supreme court asked them uh, to submit uh, the video footage or or the uh, not not did it ask uh, the judges to file an affidavit mm-hmm. so uh, then it went on to publish uh, an ecg report now within hours of that story by indian express uh, common ordinary indians started uh, tweeting about the questions that the story of by indian express was raising because the name of the patient the name of the hospital and the date and the time on the ecg report were all handwritten apart from that everything else was printed but only these uh, three things were uh, written uh then uh, if the ecg was according to the story of indian express it said that the ecg shows a massive heart attack now if ecg shows a massive heart attack that is the cause of death then why did you go for a post mortem to find out the cause of death and he was <laughs> he was a judge accompanied by five learned judges okay so uh, who allowed it uh, to happen the post mortem okay so there there is plenty to uh, to chew on for yeah. people who uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's not something that's just coming out of nowhere yes. but th- that you maybe want to point the discussion a little bit more to the uh, the, the entity that that seems to have a uh, Uh, the the agency in all of this and that's the the BJP the mm-hmm. uh, the the ruling party came to power in 2014 i believe it was the first majority parliamentary majority since uh, 84 yeah. and uh, it's uh, it it has a it's a it's a it's a right wing party that yes. uh, basically seems to build on hindu nationalism yes and i i i am curious to know i mean are are we talking essentially about 
that party as the uh, the main uh, you know author of all of this uh, that, that uh, you know maintaining that preeminence is it's what's driving this whole agenda of uh, <laughs> fascism essentially Your yes opinion. of course i mean see i mean uh, if, if you have uh, read the story yeah. uh, bjp's name does not appear in the entire story uh amit shah's name appears only thrice in the story that that is the the national president of the yeah, party the, yeah. na- the national president of the party it appears only thrice in the story first when uh, it mentions uh, the case that judge loya was presiding over uh, it says that judge loya was presiding over a, uh, a controversial case in which amit shah was one of the accused the main accused so that is a historical fact second was uh, amit shah uh was discharged 30 days after judge loya's death that is again a historical fact uh, and there is no allegation against amit shah as such or against the bjp as such but the the, the biggest objection or the uh, cognizance of this entire story was taken by bjp as if uh i mean we as if uh, the author of the story or the journalist or the reporter is uh, accusing uh, some uh, their leaders of killing judge loya and uh, uh, in fact it was the it was the kind of response from them which uh, made the story spread more and uh, uh, wider in in the country mm. now I think maybe just to kind of kind of go I I want to look at some of the other indicators that we're seeing in of uh, of a uh, you know that that erosion of uh, and corrosion of, of democracy in the country. I mean there've been a number yeah. of uh well there's been a lot of I mean Radhika you were mentioning earlier in the program about how there have been uh, uh you know a, a lot of repression out in the open uh, pogroms uh, lynchings and and yeah. such and that we're seeing a lot of that and a lot of it's being driven by the government itself and a lot of the uh you know, the rhetoric that they're using maybe i maybe give niranjan a bit of a break but uh, i i want to get some of your own mm-hmm. sense of of how these how you're seeing these uh this rise of fascism expressing itself uh first of all i'd like to well i'd like to make several points first is that um we are not using the word fascist lightly Uh, it's important to know that uh, the bjp is part of a larger family of organizations this is their word not ours they call themselves the sangh parivar named after the rashtriya swayamsevak sangh uh, rss for short um which has been in existence since the 1920s um and when it uh, was brought into being we have documentary evidence that shows and in fact many articles and books have been written about how it was directly inspired by mussolini's fascism and later of course by hitler's nazism um it operates as a brotherhood of organization of which the party is only one the rss is the parent organization and then there are a multitude of sm- uh, other organizations which include very critically organizations of young men in particular called the bajrang dal etc so basically they have a lot of muscle 
at their disposal and this is the muscle that is often used in order to execute some of these intimidatory violent and sometimes even murderous activities around the country um so that's the first point the second point i'd like to make is that this is the second time the bjp or actually the third time the bjp is in government but this time it uh, and and th- it has never been good ever but this time it it really takes the cake uh, so Uh, the first time it was in government at the national level was in the ni- late 1970s when the bjp was part of a five party coalition uh that went from 1977 to 1980 Thereafter, the BJP government uh, or the BJP led a coalition of itself with a number of regional parties um, at the national level from 1998 to 2004, and that was when Mr. Vajpayee, the previous leader of the BJP, was the prime minister. And then also we saw a number of these tendencies: the tendency to try to corrupt organizations and you know organizations carefully built up over the years, whether it is a relatively independent judiciary or important educational institutions learned societies you name it their corrosive influence could be seen everywhere but this time it takes the cake for a number of reasons mr modi so the, uh, for the first and foremost from from a broadest point of view is that uh, the bjp has managed to win the support of the biggest corporate uh capitalists of india and it is they who have catapulted mr modi to power in a couple of different ways basically once uh, they were the ones who ensured that he would be the prime minister designate even though he was nothing more than the chief minister of one state in a very large country um so that's the first thing the second thing is that they poured they bankrolled the campaign like there was no tomorrow there were journalists who have pointed out that this was the greatest electoral heist in history that is to say it was an election that was stolen from the people the amount of money that was spent is unbelievable it is more than the president of the united states spends on his campaign and you know that expenses of presidential campaigns have been going up so the nexus of Uh, and this is not just corporate donations there's huge amounts of money coming that which are the wages of corruption that are poured into it and even then if you actually look at how many people actually voted for the bjp thanks to india's first past the post system the fragmented opposition etc the bjp got it create got a majority government an overwhelming parliamentary majority on the strength of some 36% of the people uh, votes counted and if you factor in those who didn't vote it is no more than 25% of india's electorate that have voted it into power so that's the first thing you should know mm-hmm. and i think that uh, uh, of course since coming to power mr modi's hubris knows no bounds he he believes that he is india's uh, appointed uh, essentially kind of god king of some sort and he acts like that mm-hmm. and so long and and his only mission is to keep corporate india happy and everybody else can and and nothing should stop in its way so when activists protest against this dam or that land acquisition or what have you they become targets and they play the indian uh, national the hindu nationalist they, card yes yeah. they do but of course people uh, you know while uh, 
uh, I, I'm sure that Indians are as nationalist as any anybody else. They are proud Indians. At the same time, even nationalist Indians can see through. So what, one of the things you have to know as well is that they are finding more and more difficulty holding on to power. And as a result, their violence, their intimidation, their extra legal attempts to stay in power can only increase from here on. That's amazing. Um, another element, I mean, we heard so much about social media in, uh, in the United States elections. Uh, Niranjan, would you like to, to comment a little bit more on, on what you're observing? Not, not like we've talked about the, the media's mainstream mm-hmm. media. What are you seeing on social media? See, on social media, my experience has been since uh, <clears throat> about about these elements. It's it, it, since uh, the story I did on Savarkar. Uh, it was titled "A Lamb Lionized," and it had really angered the the right wing uh, party workers and the leaders. And uh, they, I mean, BJP uh, or the RSS uh, family has a dedicated team of thousands of youth who every day sit on the uh, social media and uh, uh, they will troll anybody who writes against the government. Uh, the biggest problem has been is that the uh, being anti-government is considered as anti-national and uh, they start abusing you, they start trolling you, they start threatening you, they start, they track down your family members, they th- start threatening your family members just because you are writing something against the government and uh, that's how they try to silence you. But uh, this has been going on for, for a very long uh, period of time. Uh, of course, they had uh, a short, we can say, uh, a period of um, seven, eight months of siesta. Uh, but now they have come back with full vigor. And uh, this mm. this uh, this uh, trolling on the social media in the most uh, heinous manner uh, is it's on today. Yeah. Now, in, in, in whose service? I mean, as Radhika pointed out, yeah. and, I mean, paraphrasing a bit, I mean, Modi is governing on behalf of the ruling class at the expense of the working class. So... Maybe you could, uh, what are you seeing on the ground? How have people's lives gotten worse? The the workers, the farmers, you know, how, how you've gone from, what, the frying pan to the fly, fire? Uh, like, what what, was, what are some of the major indicators you're seeing that's uh, driving people to uh, um, maybe a more desperate position? I mean, beyond the... Uh, Civil liberties, just some of the uh, concerns. Like, for example, I mean, this government began with uh, uh, banning beef. Uh, now, uh, the puni- it is a punishable offense in, in a state like Haryana. It is as good as killing a human being. Uh, in Maharashtra, uh, if, if you possess beef, uh, it is a crime uh, which would uh, jail you uh, probably for 10 years. And on the, on the pretext of cow protection, uh, there, has re- there are two systematic things that are happening. First is a, a, a attack to kill your scientific rational. And uh, second uh, is, is to uh, spread, uh, spread fear and create a business model for, for themselves. So, uh, in, on the pretext of cow protection, there have been 196 incidences of lynching in a span of six months. And uh, merely on the suspicion of possessing beef. In most of the cases, uh, it got proved that it was not actually beef. 
but uh, despite that on the on, on this suspicion of possessing beef people have got killed uh, moreover the impunity is to to such an extent that when a certain mob of people are lynching a human being to to his death uh, there is a group of people which actually video records the entire uh, lynching uh, none of the uh, uh, individual involved in the lynching is uh, hiding his face they are all uh, doing it openly it is openly video recorded then there is a group which spreads it across the uh, platforms on social media and that's how the sp uh, the fear spreads i myself have done an undercover story uh, in gujarat after traveling in gujarat and rajasthan for over 2 months i used to buy cattle from rajasthan and sell it in several slaughterhouses in gujarat and how uh, the bajrang dal uh, a militant wing of rss extorts money on the route I mean, they charge fourteen uh, thousand rupees for a truckload of cows. They charge six thousand five hundred rupees for a truckload of buffaloes. There are people. They they openly say that uh, it it took a long time for them to spread the fear, and now it's it's the time to earn money. Hmm. So uh, they don't negotiate with you. Wow. I mean, we've only got time has flown, and we've only got about a little over five minutes left okay. in the show. Okay. And I Sorry. did want to uh, bring in uh, to try to put these developments within the larger geopolitical framework. The extent to which these developments internally are influencing and being influenced by some of the uh, economic ties with with uh, neighboring countries and of course with the uh, the major powers the United States and Russia we know that there have been strategic connections with the US mm -hmm. and India for at least since the end of the cold war and of course uh, there are connections with Russia i mean we know about the BRICS alliance the i in BRICS right so i mean maybe i'll just maybe if i could give each of you a, a chance to, uh, to to respond to your what you see in terms of the interplay with the 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 broader uh, international community uh, i would i would say it very briefly i mean if if it is about developing relations with united states or uh, russia or the brics and uh, i mean if it is about creating uh, in building india as as a major economy uh, in the in the in the world uh, i just cannot digest for a fact that india actually went through a whimsical decision of demonetization A, a thriving growing economy com got completely collapsed and uh, uh, you can see it on all indicators of economic development that india is performing poorly right now just because of demonetization that's since 2016 mm -hmm. yes that's in 2016 yeah. but we are still i mean uh, the indians uh, indian businesses have still not recovered from that shock of uh, demonetization Okay. Um would you like to uh, so, sound off uh, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Very briefly, I think that uh, western um uh, 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 listeners and audiences uh, should appreciate one very important fact about the way in which India is often poised to play the spoiler in the perhaps the most important development of our times which is what we may call the rise of the rest that is to say the west versus the rest so you know for the first time in the history of modern capitalism modern capitalist society the center of gravity of the world's economy is moving away from the west and it is moving towards 
the east so to speak china in particular and india can play a very a big role and i think niranjan has already pointed out that economic mismanagement or rather managing the economy in the interest only of the biggest corporations and the richest citizens has actually cost the indian economy a great deal and i think that that's the first thing one should bear in mind the second thing is that india has especially when uh, bjp governments have taken power beginning with the vajpay government in the late 90s and today with the modi government um india has tended to essentially position itself as a, a counterweight uh, th- th- it offers itself to the west as a counterweight to china and i think that uh, this is a very important thing that we must understand that in in terms of understanding the broader relations so over the in the post cold war period india has deepened its relations not only with the united states but also israel for example and uh, so i think that all of these th- uh, and so it it can be for example it, it essentially says to the americans that every opportunity it gets um please consider us your counterweight to china and i think that's something that you western audiences should bear in mind yeah i always find it compelling to try to draw comparisons um you know, to what people you know, here in the west canada the united states are are accustomed to um i, I think some people listening might be inclined to see certain similarities between what's happening in India and what's happening in the, in the United States with Trump. Of course there are, you know, some very distinct differences and characteristics. Um but with the United States, uh there you've seen developments uh, moving in an anti-democratic direction which overwhelm partisan distinction. It doesn't matter who the governing party is. So I guess, and, and maybe we'll have to to conclude with this. Uh, do you believe? I mean, what, with the elections coming up in twenty nineteen, is, is it simply are are we looking at deeper structural issues that need to be overcome if we're going to reverse the tide, or is it simply a, a question of voting the BJP out of power? See, of course, right now the the priority it says that uh, it is far more important to uh, defeat BJP. Uh, and then of course the they have uh, ruined the the basic core democratic structure uh, in such a manner be it planning commission or be it election commission uh, or the penetration in various institutions that uh, that ha- that will have to be done immediately after uh, defeating bjp but right now the priority is to defeat bjp to save indian democracy Okay, Radhika, we've only got a couple of minutes. Uh, I'll give you a chance to, you know, offer your thoughts briefly, and and then maybe you can remind our listeners about tomorrow's event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with Niranjan that certainly defeating the BJP has to be uh, uh, the next priority. Because while I agree with you that uh, decades of neoliberalism have created a diffuse authoritarianism of its own, the Modi government is really something. It's a kind of can you shall we say a surplus of repression is now being experienced in India, which even neoliberal. does not require so i think that's that's one thing that's the chief thing to bear in mind so i will also remind the audiences of the talk that niranjan is going to give it will be tomorrow uh it will be at william stevens uh, library uh, which is at on kewaiten street um and it will be at 1:30 pm uh and if people would like to know more about it they should go to the dessa facebook page it's just called dessa for all and um it, it, you can find more details of um this event taking place there 
Okay. Well, uh, with that, I think we'll probably uh, have to call it quits. But it's it's been a pleasure to to have you both on the uh, on the program. Uh, now, Niranjan, your articles for Caravan are available on uh, on the web for yep. free, and yep. I believe you have more installments uh, that will be coming out. Uh, yes. Eventually, <laughs> yes. In, in spite of a lot of the uh, the suppression that you've been speaking of, and and you are, and also should point out that you're not currently employed. I mean, you're working freelance, yeah. but uh, yes. I don't know I'm 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 inspired by your example as a as thank a journalist, you. a fellow journalist. So uh, thanks, thank thanks you, for yes. your contribution, and yeah. uh, thank you. So thank you both, the Niranjan Takle, uh, India-based investigative journalist, and of course Professor Radhika Desai of the uh, Thank you, Mike. University and we're lucky Manitoba. to have Niranjan here. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>